Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Chris Moon, one of the luckiest people to be alive you're likely to meet. I survived as a prisoner of the Khmer Rouge after leaving the army, uh, where I did three years in operations. I was blown up working for a charity clearing landmines, losing my lower right arm and leg. Uh, I survived against all the odds uh, less than a year after I did my first marathon, and uh, I became the world's first amputee ultra distance runner in 1997 when I did the Marathon de Sable, uh, still doing all those things. Um, and I share my experiences in a way that helps people do what they do better. What's useful about experiences on the balance of life and death and the limit of human endurance is that any pretense we have as human beings is stripped away and we're left with the simple wisdom and principles if we choose to use them. So welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Series. And here is your host, Jonathan Bowman Perks. Chris, thank you. It's a, it's a real great honor to have you on this series. I, I look around at all the leadership speakers and uh, the motivational speakers, and you're one of the top guys there. I really respect and admire you. And it was lovely. We first connected about two years ago, and we were planning to have uh, a recording then, and then the lockdown came and face-to-face oh, -face went. But it is interesting when we chatted then and just now, it's like we were two old friends because we served together in the Green Howards, now the Yorkshire Regiment. There's a special bond, there's a special connection of people who have served together. And, um, but also just some of the experiences you've had and the values you hold. That's why I wanted you on the Inspiring Leadership Series. And, and it was interviewing Hugh Owen recently. And he said, the person I use in, in my organization, Arc Data Centers, as one of the top coaches and does some teamwork with us is Chris Moon. I, oh, that's great. I have such respect for Chris. And here we are. We're now doing the recording. So Chris, it's lovely to have you here. Let's talk about what you're doing now. Um, and then also, let, uh, I'd like to take you back to your upbringing and, and the journey that you you came through as a whistle stop tour. So tell us, tell us what you're doing now. Well, now I do a lot of motivational speaking. Uh, more recently, of course, we've moved online. Uh, I uh, I do a lot of keynote speeches, uh, bringing uh, to an end conferences, delivering the key emotional message messages with a call to action, and, and also do a lot of work on resilience and change, um, sharing experiences, and then uh, using the academic rigor that I've learned over the years through working with psychologists, psychiatrists, and uh, the business schools, and I did my master's in human behavior to deliver principles that have academic rigor, but at the same time, uh, it's the experience and stories that help us change. Uh, I advise a number of individuals and teams, and I coach a number of leaders um, and support people uh, to achieve and, and, and go beyond perhaps the things that limit us in life. Brilliant, uh, brilliant. And, and, and I'm, I, I've heard such great reviews of you. So um, people can reach out and find you on LinkedIn. And um, I think they, they should do. Let's go, let's go back to, the young Chris Moon, as you were growing up, who who influenced you, who shaped you, 
Um, how did you end up going to the Royal Military Police and the Greenhouse? Just just tell us a bit of a journey, and then and then obviously Halo, the Halo Trust as well. Yeah, I'm I'm incredibly fortunate to have had a father with with very um, very humble man, but he'd had his own challenges in life. Uh, he was an army commander in the Second World War. He'd lost a lung, uh, but he overcame all of that. And I guess in a way, he was a very good role model. He seldom complained, and he used to get on with it. Uh, I think another really close friend of the family, uh, my dad's best friend, a farmer who had been immensely successful. I come from a farming background. We were all farmers. Uh, uh, he was very, very focused on getting the job done, worked incredibly hard, and they were wonderful role models. And my aunt had polio. Uh, she was a great aunt and she was remarkable. I guess when I was growing up, someone who I talked to a lot and she had very, very strong values around uh, respecting people and being of service. So I guess that was an early start. And my first leadership experience, real challenge came, I think, when I was 13. I went to a, a boarding school. It was quite a small school uh, to cram for common entrance. And uh, it, it was really a great education in the principle of the Lord of the Flies being absolutely true. And in my first uh, term, I saw some behaviours that I didn't think were particularly acceptable, too much fighting. And, you know, there was... The kids used to throw stones from the cliff top onto the sea at kids who was uh, sort of lured onto the beach. And I didn't find that acceptable. In my second term, I was made deputy head boy and I stopped the stonings. And this, I think, was a great leadership lesson for me to recognise it is not a popularity contest. It is about what is doing right. And I met this massive wall of resistance. You're a square, you're not fun, you're not playing by the rules. How dare you stop us and use your authority? And I said, look, this is the right thing to do. It's not right. None of you like it when you get down there and they all throw stones at you. And afterwards, after I'd done that, every single kid came up to me quietly and said, do you know, I'm really glad you did that. So I think moral courage was something I had to learn young. Uh, then when I went on to become deputy, uh, sorry, head boy there, then moved on being senior prefect in the, the other schools I went to. So that was a great lesson. It's not a popularity contest. It's about what doing what's right, but also doing it in a way that we can get people to buy in. Um, went to agricultural college. I was in a farming partnership up until the age of 21. Uh, my business partner and my dad's best friend was a wonderful man, uh, taught me a great deal. Um, we had to do the work of two people. That was how he said we would be effective and, and be profitable. So we had to plan and think, think things through. Uh, it was all about thinking with him and looking at better and new ways of doing things. Uh, he had a great philosophy to work in life and said, look, we've got to look after ourselves, both physically and mentally. Very ahead of his time in saying we've got to look after our mental health because we were isolated milking the cows and we had to be there seven days a week so we could never be sick or injured. Uh, unfortunately, his knees and hips went. And that's a, maybe a learning for us all. What do we do to look after our long term physical and mental health? So I faced that difficult issue. Big lesson here, I think, in personal leadership, face difficult issues and they stop being so difficult. Mm. And I worried about this for months. And I learned that worrying is pointless. You've got to do something about it. Face it. And I said to him one day, look, I should do something else. We should sell up. You should enjoy your money rather than I was gradually buying him out. And he wanted somebody to take on who had the enthusiasm to do that. But um, agriculture was changing. It was becoming less profitable. 
So we faced that difficult issue. He went off. He enjoyed his money. Story of a very happy ending. He lived happily ever after until he was 92. He had a great life. Wow. And um, at the same that, time... That was your, that was your dad? Uh, no, that was my business partner. The your farmer. business partner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I wanted to do something humanitarian. And of course, back then, being a Thatcher child, I decided the humanitarian thing to do was join the army and learn how to kill people. I am, of course, only joking on that point. Uh, I joined because I believed in service. There was a threat to the United Kingdom. My grandfather and father had both fought uh, in the First and Second World War, and they taught me something about how people behave during times of violence and great change and lack of accountability. I learned the mark of the individual is not what they do. The mark of the individual is what they would do if they didn't think they would be found out. Accountability is everything. People will do the most terrible things during time of conflict uh, unless they are held accountable. Uh, and that was why I chose to become commissioned in the Royal Military Police. I had a great time at Sandhurst. I, I loved the army. Uh, did three years in counter-terrorist operations, as you know, left um, uh, and then went to work for um, the Halo Trust. I did have a great time in the army. Um, and I suppose if I had my time again, I would just stay a little bit longer. But the Halo Trust for me was tremendous. Uh, there was such an opportunity to make a difference. Um, landmines at that point seemed an insurmountable problem. Uh, I went to Cambodia initially. I ran teams there, uh, supervising and running operations initially in Passat and then in the Northwest. But there was a huge landmine problem. Um, <clears throat> It was a great lesson in leadership and, and brought together my farming background, uh, agricultural engineering and development. Uh, and it was a place where I could really, I think, use all my talents to the full. And it was very much about growing people. Our success was through getting the local staff trained up to take responsibility for operations. And it was a great education in leadership. Mm. Uh, I then went on uh, after two years to work in Mozambique, where ironically, on the 7th of March 1995, I was blown up doing the least dangerous thing. I walked back up a safe lane uh, where it wasn't possible for really complex technical and behavioral reasons to locate one landmine. The guys just couldn't find it. However, I did always say if my blokes missed a landmine, I wanted to be the first to know about it. It wasn't quite what I meant. <laughs> uh, but look, you know, if I was to go down that lane again today, there's nothing I could do differently. Um, I fought for life. Those basic things that the military teach us about procedure, about keeping your state of mind uh, uh, reasonable, current, um, getting all the drills right. So I knew we had very good medical training in Halo. I knew what to do to, to treat myself, but also I was still funding that operation. Uh, I, I was responsible for it. I was the man in charge and uh, I was doing an investigation. I was operating alone. My backup team were on the road and I was really lucky that just that day there happened to be a Kazmak helicopter in the area. So I got taken to hospital pretty quickly, but I started to die in the minefield. I knew physically when your body starts closing down, you know it. And of course, um, one of the things I had done when I got there was we rehearsed all our, our casualty evacuation drills and I did it with the leaders as um, the casualties, never thinking in my wildest dreams that I would end up being a casualty. Um, <clears throat> I focused on my reasons for living. Reasons are psychological rocket fuel. 
when I started to physically die, I knew I couldn't die because I didn't want to die before my parents. That would destroy their lives. I didn't want to die because I was responsible for my niece. I was her godfather and I didn't want to leave an empty gap in her five-year-old life. Um, I also passionately believed in my work with the Halo Trust and in the great work the organisation itself did. And I had a responsibility to my guys. I couldn't die because I knew it would be really bad for funding for my programme. So I made it. Um, they said there was no point in flying me out because I would die in Mozambique from lack of blood. But lucky for me, Halo had great insurance and, and great backup drills from headquarters. And um, the insurance company agreed to pay for a flight to fly my body back. I got put on the aircraft with my help, help from my friend, a Belgian doctor. I managed to keep breathing for another 14 hours, got to South Africa. And when I got there, they said they'd never leave, uh, seen anybody live with such a small amount of blood. I uh, was told I'd be there probably five or six months. Um, but in actual fact, I was there three and a half weeks. I had a sense of humor. Uh, I focused on the positive outcomes. I worked really hard with the wonderful medical staff helping me. Got out of there three and a half weeks, came back to London three and a half weeks, getting my artificial limbs fitted. A week of that was actually in quarantine. Uh, and then um, I taught myself to run again. My experience is quite different, I think, possibly to the army these days. Um, uh, I taught myself to run again, did my own rehab, really, once I'd learned to walk, did my first marathon less than a year after leaving hospital um, with my friend, actually, Hugh Owen, who's been here. We agreed to do a challenge because he thought the London Marathon was a bit too easy for me just after being blown up. So I did the Marathon de Sable, done most of the world's toughest ultra marathons. It's part of not why. Why does a one-on-one-legged man do that? Well, it's about not being beaten by the badness we sometimes experience. It is about overcoming adversity, challenging the concept of limitation, showing that we don't need to be beaten by the bad things that sometimes happen to us. Uh, I've never had a down moment about being blown up because I have values that make me recognise I need to not be the centre of my universe and see beyond myself. Um, I was asked to tell my story. Uh, I wrote an autobiography about surviving as a prisoner of the Khmer Rouge and my journey. Um, I was simply asked to tell my story. That was how I started speaking more than 20 years ago. And there's been an evolution. I've run lots of uh, leadership programs, team building, work with the business schools. But I love delivering keynotes. Um, I also do quite a lot of work in the field of health and safety and risk, delivering real experiences that people can use to keep those principles at the forefront of their minds, because we gradually get used to risk. Our perception is up here when we start off, but it drops off when we get into a dangerous environment. We get used to it and we stop seeing things as dangerous. So I can share experiences that bring us back up here to a perception of risk where we are aware that we need to have things at the forefront of our mind. I love speaking to live audiences and sharing my experiences uh, and helping people do what they do better. Different people will take different aspects of the principles, but life's all about making, um, making the best of life and squeezing all the juice out of life. It's truly a gift we sometimes take for granted. Brilliant, Chris, and hugely inspiring story. Um, I think probably of the 170, that that takes the biscuit. And and I will take you up on that. The the charity that Lee, my wife, set up, the Inspiring Leadership Trust, is for vulnerable women. So we've got people in South Africa, um, KwaZulu Natal, uh, who we've we've helped the the young poor girls there who've gone through awful situations in Kenya as well. But in this country with serious and organized crime, we work with the Home Office and the Department for Work and Pensions. And we get great motivational speakers 
to generously give their time to speak to the volunteers who are mentors and coaches to the yeah. girls who are going through the abuse and the modern day slavery and trafficking. And I think you'd be a, a great speaker. So we'll we'll chat about that after I connect you with Lee. Um, thank you uh, for that. Uh, wow. Where, where do we go from there? So interested next in, in all the different experiences you've had. Firstly, your proudest moment, what you learned from it. And secondly, your darkest moment. And what did you learn from that, Chris? Um, I think probably my, my, my proudest mo moment um, in leadership terms was when I was running uh, the HALO program in the northwest of Cambodia, when we handed over field operations to our Cambodian team leaders. And we were doing the operations, uh, we trained them up, we stepped back, and they rose to the challenge. Um, I did also have a, a challenge around that time because there was uh, accidents were then classed as preventable and non-preventable. It was a non-preventable accident. A guy prodded, as he was trained to do, uh, to the side of a fragmentation device that he picked up with his metal detector, and it touched a pin, the uh, release pin to an MUV4 fuse, and the device initiated injuring him quite badly, but we looked after him, our CASVAC drills worked really well, got him to the hospital and he was absolutely fine. So I had to do an investigation to understand how this had happened. And I found out during my investigation, the device had been booby trapped. So we knew it was a non-preventable accident, but it was the first accident the guys had had. And I got them all together. And uh, so it's a lot of them on, on two lorry loads. So about 120 guys. And I, we all sat down in my field. I explained the results of my investigation. And I told them that, you know, we could still work safely because a lot of them were very concerned. And I told them that I would be the first man going into the minefield and starting work again. And I explained the learning about the booby trap device, what we could do next time to change our procedures. Because quite often, I mean, if you speak to the ATOs from Northern Ireland in the 70s, they say that their standard operating procedures were developed by the blood of previous operators. And so, you know, it's, it's about taking that learning because you don't know everything. And that's why mine clearance becomes safer and safer all the time, because we are constantly learning. So I took the learning from that incident. We changed our procedure slightly. And uh, I thought, I'm not sure how the guys are going to receive this, but I will be absolutely honest with them and I will lead by example. And to my great joy and utter surprise, as soon as I finished speaking, they all stood up and gave me a standing ovation. Fantastic. Uh, brilliant, Chris. And... Darkest moment in your personal life? Or your um, I think uh, this is really embarrassing, but I will tell you. OK, so there's a race near where I live called the West Highland Way Race, and it is great fun. It's 95 miles. It's one of the toughest races I've done. And it is 95 miles that has to be completed in under 30 hours, uh, 33 hours over really difficult terrain. And you have a support crew who look after you, the race rules, it's a real family. It's a family of volunteers who come and help support this race, but it is a real tough race. And I have, one year, it was really dry on the course uh, uh, throughout the West Highland Way walking route. And uh, I broke both my artificial legs. So they literally fell apart. And there was some learning there that we could take back. I've been testing legs for 20 years. And the learning from those two breakages we took back and we were able to um, sort it out and improve the prosthesis and the way that it worked. 
But I came back to do the race again um, the next year and I'd had flu. And I thought, no, I'm going to have to not do it. I'm going to have to not do it. And all my ultra distance running friends said, look, this bug's been going around. A couple of people have had it. They've already pulled out. Look, you've only just got it. You should pull out. Don't do the race. And I and I felt better the day before the race. I thought I felt better. I've done it. Uh, it's a virus. I've overcome everything else. I can overcome this. But of course, what I'd overcome was very different. <laughs> I'd overcome physical injury. I'd overcome pain. I'd overcome dehydration, all things that were within my domain. So I started the race. I did 26 miles and my flu came back. And then I thought, actually, I really shouldn't have done that. I should have listened. So it's embarrassing for two reasons. Number one, because I didn't listen. <clears throat> Number two, because I think that I didn't use my experience appropriately. I'd gone through so many other things. And I, I think probably what I'm trying to explain here is, is why I find it embarrassing is because, you know, my experience said to me, this is risky. My reason and analytics said, it's pointless, don't do it. But my heart said, go on, give it a go. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, it, but the learning that I passed on to other people and my other friends who are ultra runners um, has been immensely helpful. And the learning that I've got out of it means that I will be able to um, still meet my goal of running ultra distance in my 80s. Yeah, it, it, it is a, a remarkable story that you tell. And, and it reminds me of a, a friend of mine who's also in Scotland, Paul Chapman. And Paul, uh, who is a headhunter, said you need to think about many of the decisions you make about life in the four quadrants of head, heart, gut, and wallet. Um, and um, I, I often have to say to people, look, my, my heart says I'd love to help you, but my head says I just don't have the capacity in my diary. And if I do this for you, I'm actually going to stop doing something for my wife and my, my daughters and my son. So, so actually, no, I, I won't be doing it. So, so balancing what the heart says you'd love to do with what the head says logically you can do is something that's uh, served me well. Um, I love that. Tell me that again. Head, heart. heart, gut and wallet. And that's um, head, heart, gut and wallet. Because, of course, the wallet is particularly when people are going for jobs. You know, does it um, is it logical? Um, the head, you know, 98 billion neurons. Is this, is this logical? Heart, uh, 100 million neurons around the heart, the, the, the second brain, as they call it. Um, do, do, would you love doing that? Uh, gut, um, no, sorry, heart has 40,000 neurons around the heart. The gut has 100 million, and, and this is where serotonin comes from, your gut, as you know. Yeah. I've done a whole study about the microbiome, which I find very interesting, the holobiome, which is all of our um, microbes. Um, but, but in the 100 million, you have a sort of gut instinct about something. Does it feel right? Or is it not gut instinct? And there's lots of calculations going on. So trust that, do trust the gut, but you need to check the others. And then wallet, you know, like I got a great job after PwC, which was gonna be at Ashridge. And I just would love to, you know, be a, a teacher at Ashridge um, uh, College. That would be really interesting. But the, I looked at the, the finance of it and, and moving my family down to live in that beautiful part of the world from Yorkshire, I couldn't have afforded to do it. And I was working PwC, I would have been on, you know, a third of the, the money. I just went, guys, I would love to have done it, but it just, the, 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 the wallet bit doesn't add up. So head, heart, gut, and wallet. It's, it, it served me well and served others well. 
Uh, Chris, what piece of advice do you wish you had when you'd started out? So if we went back and met the 16 to 18 year old young Chris Moon, knowing what you know now, what bit of advice would you give to a young man? Okay, so to the 16, 18 year old Chris Moon who lived in the countryside, who's very extrovert, I would say make the effort to reach out to people, connect with people, don't be isolated, and also don't be intimidated by people. Don't, don't be shy, don't let people, there are people out there who will particularly enjoy, um, uh, this is a reality of it, some people enjoy knocking others down, don't let anybody knock you down, be confident, don't be cocky, believe in yourself, and remember we blossom according to our courage. Mm. That's, that's great advice, great advice. And then we're getting around the eight components of the Inspiring Leadership Compass. Um, interested in hearing, you know, quick fire uh, questions here, but um, moral question, MQ, what, what have been the two foundational, uh, sorry, the, the top three foundational values that you've lived by? And, and yeah. what's, what's happened when you've let them slip and how do you get yourself back to live according to your values? Because it's very important to you, I know. Yes, it is. Um, so, I think the number one value for me is that I have a passionate belief in the dignity of the individual. And that is why the work that your wife does is so important to me. Uh, but also in leadership, I have seen it go horribly wrong when leaders don't have that principle and they are unaware of their effect on other people. And at the same time, I've also seen leaders who are abusive, who enjoy uh, humiliating people. And I find that absolutely abhorrent. Mm. And uh, I think the second principle is actually most of us know what's right. Uh, most of us have a feeling. There are those who maybe don't, but the majority of us do. So do what, what, what you know is right, because actually, if you don't, it will diminish you. Mm. And I do believe that, that what goes around comes around. And people do reap what they sow. They might not always realize it. Um, and bear in mind, it's not necessarily having things that makes us happy. It is doing things. I've seen some incredibly wealthy people who have little value or meaning in their life. And everything is very superficial. Uh, uh, value and meaning comes from our relationships. And, and also, I think, recognize we're all different. I connect with nature. I'm very, very rooted in that and I grew up in the countryside I I relate um, to animals to nature I love gardening uh, so do things that you love and make the effort to face up to have the courage to do what we think is right in life and be where we want to be mm. because it's always easier not to do something so have a plan and do what you know is right mm. I love that um the next one is PQ, what gives your life meaning and purpose? And you've come across the words like Dharma, calling, vocation. Why do you do what you do, Chris? I, I genuinely actually feel that I do have a vocation. Possibly it's because I grew up in a village with the Church of England where they talked about vocation. People had really strong views on what was right and wrong. And, and But church, I guess, then for me was not so much religious as, as very much a connection of people with different views. So we'd all chat afterwards. And, and that was a really interesting way to grow up where, you know, a retired brigadier would come over and just have a chat with you about what was happening in your life in the village. So it was a very great social experience. 
Um, I'm not sure necessarily particularly religious, but that, that was really helpful for me to have these conversations about what you thought was right. And, and they were very good, those, those kind of people where I lived, at actually saying, well, what do you think? And making you think and helping you to grow. So I, I think that's, that's really important. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, after, uh, remind me after this, I'll get you to talk to Henry Perks, who's um, my uh, nephew. And uh, he's just finishing his time in the commandos, Royal Engineer Commandos. And um, I think he hasn't had the best of all experiences, but he's just been awarded the um, Engineer in Chief's Award as, as one of the most finest officers in the Royal Engineers. But he goes, oh, it's nothing really. I go, no, it's a really big thing. <laughs> But he, he doesn't know what to do next. Um, and okay. I think I think he could have a chat with a Chris Moon. I think Chris would you be wonderful. Yeah. yeah See, that, that's one of the things that I, I really love to do. So my vocation is to share my experiences, which I'm very privileged to have and to ask people questions. You know, when we last met, I, I was talking about the, how we solve our problems in life. It's through asking uh positive questions that will lead us to, to, to be the hero of our own life. So mm. that for me, I guess, is a vocation. But also I have been so privileged to have had the experiences that I've had now. Uh, and of course, even more so to have survived them. So I've had experiences that I haven't met anybody else who's had in the same way. And on the ultra runs that I still do, I think a lot and I learn a lot. And, and so I have a great deal that I wanna share. Uh, and, and that's what drives me to speak, but also to entertain. Humour is one of our greatest coping mm. mechanisms. Mm. Oh, humour is very much. And, and you remind me of um, the, the, the audio book I was listening to about the former Navy SEAL who does all these ultra events. What's his name? Come on. You must I met him in Badwater in Death Valley. It's my favourite race. Um, it's 135 miles through the hottest place on earth. And you meet amazing people like that there. What, what was his name? Can you remember his name? He's a no, black guy. Black guy. Um, I'll have to look it up. I, I've met quite a few seals there, actually. Yeah, but he, he was just uh, can't hurt me. His right. books. Look, read the book. Can't hurt me. Um, and I'll think of the guy's name, but just inspirational that what he pushed himself through, which leads me on to health and well-being. HQ, the, the next component of the inspiring leadership compass. What's been your experience of all these things you've done about? Uh, keeping yourself physically and mentally fit um, and how you pick yourself up when you let yourself slip? Okay, I think the measure for me, it, the good analogy would be, we've all got so much fuel in the tank. And, and I think this is particularly important with mental health to recognize that we don't wanna run the batteries out. We don't wanna run out of fuel. So we need to do things that will firstly keep our head in the right place. Because if our head's in the right place, our physical fitness will tend to follow that um, if we can be disciplined to do that. And recognize that being healthy is a discipline. It is simply something that we should do. To, it is our responsibility to look after ourselves. The health service cannot do that for us. So there are several components to it. The first one is get your head in the right place. Um, make the effort to look after ourselves. And with regard to mental health, uh, I did some work with a psychologist who studied um, people in the British government service who were sent to the most challenging places and the most dangerous places on the planet. And he did a study into how they coped. And what was really interesting was, I, I was so excited because I thought, oh, there must be a model here. And he said, well, that's what I thought, but there isn't. But we did learn something else that's really important. 
the people who coped really well, who didn't get PTSD, I was used as a study by some psychiatrists into why don't you get PTSD? Because I didn't get it. Uh, because I worked really hard not to do it. So what I'm about to share, I think, is why I didn't get it. Because I understood this principle that um, the psychologist found in these people he studied, which is those who coped had a mind to. And when it started to get challenging, they asked for help. Asking for help is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of strength. <clears throat> the weakest thing to do is just sit there wibbling like a jelly and not asking for help. Ask for help. That's my first point. Second point, take ownership. Take ownership and responsibility. Make the effort to do things that recharge our psychological batteries. And maybe if there are people that drag us down, we should find a way of dealing with that or avoiding them. Because that happens to a lot of people and they're not always keen to talk about it in my experience, but sometimes they do get dragged down. And, and so we need to have our own strategies and I'm quite good at helping people develop their own strategies now for doing that. Um, uh, and then physically, I think it's really, I am such a fan of walking or, or running. I love running, but you've got to do it in a way, I think with a sensible long-term view, look after yourself. The amputees that I knew running marathons 20 years ago, all of them can't run at all now because they've worn out the limb that they've got. And it, it you know, it, they've just basically worn out the ligaments and tendons and, yeah. and so look after your long-term health. That, that's so true. And, and for example, I'm just 60 now or almost 60. And uh, I went for a run with my daughter, um, Brani, and we used to love running. It's been my big thing. I, I hold the record for the Cypress Double Mountain Marathon, eight hours and nine minutes up Mount Trudos. <clears throat> Actually, um, sorry, forgive me, just if I may just contribute one thing. I heard about you before we met. All right. They, they said that bloke, Jonathan Bowman, has got a great set of legs on him. <laughs> and talking about that marathon that you did and I said yeah he's got great legs and so many of them <laughs> <laughs> that's a lovely story thank you I like that one well I, I went for a run with um with Brian the other day and it was all roads just 6k um but it was in sort of West Hampstead and a bit hilly and and again the the damn bursa behind the knee pops up like a golf ball um and it always does when I run on roads and, and which reminds me, you probably all got a tip for that. James Bashel, uh, General James Bashel, who's another friend of Dave Hudson's, who we've talked about, who's been on the series, and James has been on the series too. Um, as the Colonel Commandant of the PT Corps, um, the old, uh, the wily old PT Sergeant Major said, uh, now you get to 60, sir, stop doing junk miles. I said, what do you mean? He said, you love the running, don't you? He said, but it's, it's inflammation. And as you get older, it's the thing you need to switch from that to HIIT training. So I now do three, three days a week HIIT training and it really helps me. But it's interesting when I got back out running on roads again, up the old bursa popped up. Have you seen that ever happen? Uh, I, I've had bursitis on, on, uh, with a prosthesis that didn't quite fit right on the front of my knee and it was really painful, sort of housemaid's knee, isn't it? And it's, it's from that, that inflammation caused by usually the impact Mm. Uh, yeah, I've had, I've probably had most of these things, but I, I also, I think a really important principle, which I thank you for, for, uh, reminding me to include is, you know, it's really important to know when not to train. Yeah. That's what this is about, isn't it? That people just keep on doing what they've always done. But also I notice a lot of people from the military, when they do staff jobs, stop training 
and, and particularly perhaps at SO1 level when they stop training, that's when they get the injuries when they come back. Yes. Yeah. I th- I, so I, I also think you've just got to keep on going. I did the London Marathon um, a couple of years ago. I've done it many, many times, but I finished and, and I, I, I was quite pleased to did PB. It was about 3.45. Wow. And, and um, I crossed the line with a guy who looked about, uh, you know, probably mid sixties. And I said to him, look, congratulations, you know, for, for me, I'm thrilled that I've just done this, but I don't mean to be disrespectful, but for a man who looks about mid sixties, that is a phenomenal time. And you really sprinted that last bit with no effort at all. If you don't mind me asking, what's the secret? And he said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that you asked me. Thank you. Cause it now gives me a chance to tell you that I'm 75. And the secret I want to share with everyone is don't stop. You've got to keep going and change your training. Ease off if it is difficult, but don't stop. Don't let your muscles decline because when you lose the muscles around the knee, that's when you get the trouble. So the consultant surgeons that I know have said, look, do you know what? Runners' knees are probably much worse, but if they keep the muscle around them, the muscle acts like a shock absorber and works the joint. You're so right. And I have found during the lockdown for the last 18 months, I've done this sort of three, three hit uh, training sessions a week. And I've also got a personal trainer who comes to the garage here and trains my wife three times a week and then me once a week. Uh, And I have found that that combined with um, yoga on the other days, I I have apart from this bursitis in, in a year and a half, I've had no injuries at all because there's so much more strength. I'm stronger now near, near 60 than I've ever been when I was a young army officer because I had proper training. And while we did lots of physical things and I did airborne training and things like that, I didn't actually have any proper training in HIT and how to look after the muscles and that kind of stuff. And we were all rather amateur at it. And as a result, I took a number of injuries over the years, as I'm, I'm sure. I, you I, I think that's very fair of, of the army then. I think that there was, um, I, well, when I first went through Sandhurst and came out, there was this attitude of no pain, no gain. Yeah. And I, I think that we now, I've, I've got various friends who've gone through the physical training, army physical training corps. That is an attitude that they would just roll their eyes to the ceiling and put their heads in their hands with embarrassment over. So the way that military training is conducted now and has been for the last 20 years is much more enlightened. Yes, very much um, so. And, yeah. and, and yes, but I do think uh, your point is a very fair one. I remember back, back then, you know, you'd go on courses and they just expect you to be fit when you got there without giving out any training programs. Mm, no, it's so, so true. And, and I remember <laughs> doing the airborne training with, uh, as I say, with Dave Hudson and James Bash, another guy called um, Julian Brammel, who, who lovely, he, through hearing the podcast, um, he reached out, he's in uh, Abu Dhabi. And, and he uh, and Dave and I used to push this maroon mini we call the, the mean machine uh, to get it started. We pushed it down the hill and then jumped into it from the officer's mess and it, it sailed down the hill to get to the bottom for the training. But, but um, we went and did the, 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 the pre-training before P Company, which was even more severe training than P Company itself. You get through the, the, the pre-para, you yeah. be fine on para, but people got so many injuries in the pre-para because they, they just sort of 
came into it not properly. I've, I've heard a lot of that and I'm very aware of people who were just um, run ragged and picked up a whole load of injuries uh, you can see there's a certain logic to say and I think this is a really interesting point on leadership in the wider context that of mindset so if you look at the mindset of the people mm. running that training I, I suspect that it was um, look if we give them this really hard experience and they get through it then they'll have a very good chance at P company. But in actual fact, when you made your beat up so difficult that it weakened people and made them susceptible to injury, because what you're doing with that kind of short, sharp shock is making people much more susceptible to injury. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, you know, it's, it's, it's something that where the mindset is clearly not, um, uh, it doesn't have a full understanding of physical training and how bodies work. And, um, I suspect it was also because units didn't want to send people who might fail. And, and those courses were actually run, I think, by junior and senior NCOs who were very process orientated yeah. rather than seeing the bigger picture of the analysis of, right, let's understand what's our objective here. It is to get people fit enough to pass this selection course. So what do we need to do that? We need to build them up. We need to get them to be able to run fast and we need to make sure that the training builds them up rather than breaks them. Yeah. That's kind of, so mindset is amazing. I think it's mindset. Is that fair, by the way? Oh, I, so many stories to back up exactly what you said, Chris. So two that I think of one on the, the beat up, um, the, the, the corporal hated me because I was a young captain. And so I was the one who was sweeping the whole, you know, everybody could go home and then right. You, you know, come here, you're sweeping the floor. And I would be sweeping the gym floor for hours. And then he'd come back and check on me just to see if it would break me. And it's all this mental attitude. And I went, fine, thank you. Thank you, stuff. And I just, just carried on brushing. And um, the officers had to lead by example. So they had to be as fit and fitter than the men. So they would often get the, the soldiers to rest and the officers would be sent up to do another couple of uh, heartbreak hill turns while the guys rested. And then when we came back down, we didn't get a rest. We just sent with them. And so it had to be this attitude. And that did help me when he, he for example, he loved picking on me. And um, um, what happened was one of the young uh, gunners, because these signals and the gunners trained together, was lagging at the back. And he said, right, you, sir, in a silly way, he said, carry his pack. And I go, thinking, but this, I've got a 55-pound pack, and I've got to carry his 55-pound pack. I said, but I've got one staff. He goes, I know, but put it on the front, stick your arms out. And he took it off this guy and he put his pack on me and he just wanted to break me. He really wanted to see, he said, give up. You know, look, there's a wagon back there. You can jack it, just get out. You're not really for airborne at all. And I went, thank you staff, but I think I'll keep going. And I just, I couldn't run. So I just walked for about, it seemed like 10 minutes. It probably was five, but it was the longest five minutes in my life. And then he went, look, okay. Hey, come back here, Smith, take your pack. And then I could join the group, but I was almost broken. And, but I think this thing I did in the beat up, we did the trinasium and, and running over all these obstacles. We were wearing shorts and t-shirts. We got muddy and we got wet and I had to slide down the fireman's pole. And you're just like, you're not gonna have any resistance at all. And I was like, well, I jumped off. And I went all the way down and I twisted my spine. I felt about, I could not move, I was paralyzed. And he went, don't worry, here, I'll sort you out. <laughs> And he, like this corporal, sort of twisted me and, and it sort of 
got me moving again. But I spent the rest of the course not able to do sit ups because I couldn't sit up. And even on the parachute jumping, I, I couldn't properly sit up. So I'd sort of roll to one side and then get up. And it haunted me for years to come. And again, it was exactly as you say, Chris, exactly as you say. Anyway, sorry, you got me reminiscing again. Back to EQ. Uh, let's do some quick fire EQ, CQ and, and, and onwards. What would you say your top tip on building rapport and emotional intelligence skills, Chris? Recognize that it's not all about you. It is about them. Listen, if I was to say what is the most in single important uh, quality of a leader in the modern world, it is the ability to listen. But it's not that simple. You have to let people feel they are listened to and valued. Many leaders are right. They'll, they'll be several steps ahead when somebody comes in and says, should we do this? But you need to give people the time and then explain. Because if people don't feel listened to, they will not engage. And of course, no one can understand everything. We need to be able to listen. We need to be able to uh, also at the same time help people understand. And, and it comes back to the principle of having a passionate uh, belief in the dignity of the individual. I think that's hugely important. Um, you know, if you are a leader, people are probably always going to be nice to you because you're the leader. Some people won't like you because you are a leader. But both of those categories are relatively small. But you know, there are, there are lots of stories of CEOs who've um, left their role and then they go back into the building to see somebody when they're no longer CEO and nobody speaks to them because they didn't, you know, they were just not nice to people. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And, and you, the word dignity comes up a lot. I went and did a leadership course at Harvard uh, and Donna Hicks was the professor who taught us. And, and she's written a book called Leading with Dignity and her 10 principles of dignity, but also when you violate dignity. And I think uh, <coughs> if you remind me, I'll dig them up and share them with you. But it's quite interesting, the 10 components, Donna Hicks, H-I-C-K-S. Um, CQ is the next one, Chris, um, which we, we've sort of found, we've been looking into lately, which is this cultural intelligence quotient and collective intelligence of a, of a group of people. Um, what, have, what have you found most useful about developing diversity, equality and inclusion and, and this idea of, of a, a healthy culture? Sure. Diversity and inclusion is really, really important to me. Um, and, and it comes back to this principle of, of the dignity of the individual. But I was president of Disability Sport England ooh, almost 20 years ago now for six years. Um, and, you know, attitudes to the disabled have changed so much in, in 20 years and very, very much for the better. And, and now we're starting to challenge, you know, attitudes towards mental health. Mental health is just not an issue that affects 20% of the society. You know, mental health affects each and every one of us. You know, and I admire the courage of Dave Hudson being able to speak out. And, and it's great that he did that because I know lots of people who haven't spoken out, who suffer in silence. Mm. Um, so I think one thing I would say about culture and bringing a team together and getting the best out of each other. Uh, and it's actually a book I read called Napoleon Hill, written in the 1930s, called Think and Grow Rich. And in it, he describes creating your mastermind team. And he, he basically points out that if we can get people working together, they will have an output of um, 
you know, not just say if you're a group of five of the intellect of five people, there will be a force multiplier there. So if we can connect up, we will be like, um, it's the experiment you do at school, isn't it? With batteries in series and parallel, that if you get it the right way, they will shine much brighter. And that's what we need to do with our culture, put it together in a way in which people can shine brightly. But we must also recognize that if we are doing that, we need to keep recharging the batteries. Brilliant. And talk about recharging the batteries takes me nicely on to resilience question. What would be your top tip? You, you, you're a man who has shown resilience in so many different ways. What would be your top tip on resilience? Oh, now that is such a great question. Um, Never give up. Don't be beaten by the badness. Hold your head high and never do anything through fear. Mm. That's great, Chris. Thank you. And I think never do anything through fear is a, a big one, um, which um, leads on to brand, reputation, image, and impact, BQ, because in, in some organizations, people like that commanding uh, that uh, CEO uh, we talked about commanding officers you and I talked about an unnamed leader who was a bully uh, got to very senior rank was a bully and a bit of a white collar psychopath and achieved a lot of things but often their brand or their reputation what people said about them when they were not in the room was not a good one yeah. um, what would be your top tip on on developing a, a, a respected brand and reputation and image and impact uh, firstly, in, in early life, work out who you are. So work out who we are, what's important to us, and just be yourself. It reminds me of, of, of Phil Marshall Slim's quote, leadership is just plain you. Be just plain you, uh, but recognize that sometimes we need to modify our behavior. It's not all about us. Have the integrity to stick to your values and don't think you should do something to be seen to do something. Be who you are. Yeah. Be yourself. Be yourself only better. I seem to remember it was a... Was a, a well, that, that, a that's a, a great caveat. And I was just trying to think there's something else I want to say here. And what I would say is we've got to get there every day and be the best version of ourselves that we can be because it is always a constant journey. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Chris, with those moments when you were dying in the minefield, um or or occasions just like recently I, I told you about talking to my brother before he died of cancer he knew he was going to die he had about 10 weeks to live but we had some of the most profound conversations about what really mattered and yeah. uh, and they will stay with me always um which nicely goes on to legacy um legacy is what happens after your death and and i'm a great fan of the stoics as i think you must be through yes the Daily Stoic by Marcus, uh, by um, Marcus Aurelius. Uh, Marcus Aurelius did meditations, but uh, Ryan Holiday right. com compiled them all together. And, and, and I hadn't really sort of thought about this. We, my, my sergeant major at Santist was insulting me one day when said, so you're a legacy in your own lunchtime. I, I think that was demeaning. He was deliberate trying to take the, uh, the mickey out of me. But um, he, he made this point that that people spend their time worrying about, you know, will a, a city be known after you or will something be named in, you know, and will be two people be talking about you when you're gone? And he said, you know, Alexandria 
is still named, you know, some some couple of centuries afterwards is still named after Alexander the Great. But he doesn't know that he's, you know, he and his mule driver are both pushing up the daisies next to each other. There's no privilege in death. They're both dead. And, and so we worry a lot about what people might say about us long after our life. But actually, that's as much as complaining that people who who died before you were born or haven't been talking about you. You know, so so what's your view on legacy and, and what would well, you like your legacy to be? I think legacy for me is is very different and why do you want to be remembered uh i i I would like to have had a positive impact on people but also uh to be kind and and kindness is something we don't talk about enough uh you know i i think there's a really good illustration here on legacy and it's, it's about two guys sitting together in the pub. One opens the paper and says, oh, look, old, old Mr. Jones up there in the biggest house in the village has just died. Uh, let's have a look. How much do you reckon he left? Richest man in the village. And the one bloke just looked at him and said, he left all of it. <laughs> and and uh, so I, I know there are people... Uh, who think very differently to me, who want a statue, who want a town left, left, um, named after them. I suppose I would like uh, my love to live on in the hearts of my friends and my family. Mm, that's a, that means a lot. That means a lot. And that was, funny enough, what I was saying to David. He was saying, I haven't done as much as you and Graham have, my other brother. And I said, that's not what we'll remember will remember the kindness yeah and will remember the love i, I think that, that love is the it. only thing that lasts forever and and it's very interesting that if you look at the um i'm trying to remember his name the guy that commanded and set up the french foreign legion uh, was a fearsome warrior and yet when he died he asked for his grave to have three words on it faith hope and charity mm. Mm. yeah no, I think beautiful, beautiful. Well, Chris, we're coming towards the end. Um, last two questions and then your two minute top tip. Um, executive teams, you're working with teams all the time. If you were to give a, a top tip about taking a, a, a toxic team, which yeah. may have a toxic individual in and making it a healthy, high performing team, what would be your, your top tip? understand what the issues are. Let's really understand what's going on and why it's going on. And uh, sometimes I have found that people who were bullies have left, you know, uh, an impact, a toxic impact on culture for four or five, six years even. So what, you know, why is it people are behaving the way they're behaving? How do we create a consensus that will get people to buy in to working constructively and positively. And of course, not, not everybody always wants to, and some people may not wish to be there. That's another thought. Mm. No, that's very good. And you, I really am resonating with that. Never underestimate the, the shadow that you cast. Make sure it's a positive one and not a negative one. And I, and I, I have thought that's so right, what you just said, that, that people's uh, legacy, negative or positive, when they've <clears> left a job, stays with those they've been with long after they've gone and then that becomes the way you treat people so if yeah. they're a bully that the other people get bullied and if they're good then actually that will stay on even when someone evil comes in 
um, that there's still some goodness around. Um, favorite book, which would be the favorite book? We, we talked about a few. Uh, yeah, uh, and, I, and, and I, I'm, I'm looking forward to your one step beyond when it comes out again. Yeah. Um, but uh, what would be your favorite book? Something you've read on leadership. Um, I think the most helpful and useful book to me is, and I've just, just reread it actually, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Because naturally, if we're focused and driven and task oriented, it's very easy to sometimes forget our effect on people. So I think How to Win Friends and Influence People is immensely helpful both in our personal lives and our professional lives and i would recommend it yeah no that's great and also with your time being a prisoner of the chimera rouge the hostage at the table by george um colro was uh, was also very here it is this is one of my favorite books yeah, uh, yeah. as well because uh, it's a tremendous insight into how to influence people positively and Ironically, many years afterwards, I met George and I read his book and much of it is exactly what I did to influence the Khmer Rouge positively to not execute us. Because what I've subsequently learned uh, after the Khmer Rouge surrendered and it's all come out, that it was a done deal, we were to be executed, but I managed to persuade the commander uh, known now as Kalpong, he gave me a different name then, but uh, persuaded him uh, to identify with me and my Cambodian colleagues, and very much a lot of that was leading by example. Uh, uh, I walked the talk in every single way. Um, so yeah, lead by example. Perfect. Well, uh, not many people can say, you know, when I was a prisoner of war of the Khmer Rouge, that's one hell of a hell of a story in itself. So I'm sure when people get you as a speaker, you can share more there. Uh, so Chris, would you just introduce yourself once again, say what you do, and then leave them with the two minute top tip and we'll wrap up there, but stay on the line. Okay. Um, hi, I'm Chris Moon, one of the luckiest people to be alive you're likely to meet. Uh, I am a former army officer. I left to work for a charity to protect the innocent uh, by clearing landmines in Asia and Africa. I was in Cambodia for two years. I got taken prisoner by Khmer Rouge guerrillas. Uh, we were held for a short time. I persuaded them not to execute us and release uh, myself and my two Cambodian colleagues. I stayed there for another two years, went to work in Mozambique and ironically got blown up doing the least dangerous thing I ever did walking in a safe area for really complex and technical uh, reasons that we couldn't prevent, although it was possible to learn from it. Um, I, I was written off as dead a couple of times on my Kazavak and then I um, recovered much faster than they thought I would. I did my first marathon less than a year after leaving hospital, became the world's first amputee ultra distance runner, still running uh, ultra distance races. And I share my experiences uh, on the balance of life and death and limit of human endurance to help people see the bigger picture of life, to recognize that we don't need to be dragged down and beaten by the badness that we sometimes expect in life, that life truly is a gift that we sometimes take for granted. And so I can give a sense of perspective and I can share experiences that will um, take away any pretense we have as human beings um, to help people uh, engage in life positively, to uh, make the best of things and ultimately to do what we do better. Well, Chris, thank you. Utterly inspiring, as I knew you would be. And I wish you every success in touching the lives of people positively. You've certainly touched mine today. And I thank you on behalf of all those listening in all the different countries. Thank you, Chris. Thank you.
So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.